I would like to open this hearing of the Senate Committee with the longest name in the Senate, the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues. Even if we did an acronym, it would be long. But it's a really important committee, and we've got a great hearing today, and I think it's going to be well attended. I welcome two distinguished panels of witnesses for this hearing on China's role in Latin America and the Caribbean and the importance of U.S. engagement in the region. I want to thank my ranking member, Senator Rubio, for his help in crafting this hearing, for his dedication to advancing American interests and values in the Western Hemisphere. We worked together on these issues uh, during my entire time in the Senate, and I really value his, uh, his focus and his partnership. We're pleased to convene this hearing on the important topic um, East-West issues receive outsized attention in the media and in our own foreign policy work, and that's understandable. But North-South ties are every bit as important because of the inextricable political, cultural, and economic bonds we share with our neighbors throughout the Americas. Last year, I had the privilege of traveling to Mexico, Ecuador, Colombia, and Guatemala. Senator Portman and others were with me. It was a bipartisan CODEL in July. We saw a region devastated by the pandemic. Uh, and eager not just for American vaccines, but for deeper American engagement and leadership. But we also saw how China has increased its own engagement throughout the region, accompanied by an aggressive public diplomacy campaign promoting Chinese propaganda. China pushes the narrative that it's a benevolent patron or that it's a template for economic development while achieving what it terms long-term social stability. But China's genocide against the Uyghur people in Xinjiang and the harassment of Uyghurs abroad clearly shows the Western Hemisphere and the rest of the world just what China's vision of development and social stability really looks like. I'm thinking of Virginia's large and vibrant Uyghur American community, many of whom have family members targeted by the Chinese government or who face harassment and threats right here in the United States. Beijing's genocide against the Uyghurs shows that China's vision of stability is not truly for all of its people. And China's engagement in the Americas has some cautionary tales that we need to understand. Um, Ecuador, for example, nearly 20 years ago, former President Rafael Correa promised modernization for Ecuador, embracing Chinese loans and infrastructure projects in exchange for its oil. Fast forward to today, Ecuador now lives with a Chinese-financed and built dam that's not fully operational despite being opened in 2016. The Coca-Cola Sinclair Dam required over 7,000 repairs. It sits right next to an active volcano, and erosion continues to damage the dam. The dam also caused an oil spill in 2020 that has impacted indigenous communities living downstream. And all that's on top of the billions of dollars that Ecuador still owes China. The Ecuador case is just one example, but as China continues its quest for natural resources and raw materials throughout the region, including lithium in places like Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile, or copper in Peru, these countries have to take the Ecuador example very, very seriously. Beyond its economic engagement, we know China also wants to increase diplomatic and security engagement in, uh, accompanied by a concerted effort to project soft power through its public messaging and influence activities. As we discussed at our last hearing on vaccine diplomacy, China quickly exerted its influence in Latin America and the Caribbean following the outbreak of the pandemic, despite the fact that China sold, didn't donate, but sold most of its vaccines to the region. It successfully created the impression that the vaccines were in fact donated. 
I'm interested in hearing from our witnesses from the Department of State, USAID, the Development Finance Corp., and our second panel of private uh, expert witnesses about how the U.S. is responding to Chinese engagement in the region and how we're deploying the elements of our toolkit. I've been critical of China in these opening comments, but one area I have to praise them, they are deeply, deeply engaged in the region. And we often hear from regional leaders, we would much rather deal with you than with China, but they tend to be at the table in a more aggressive way. And so we need to talk about the threat, but also the opportunities for us to have deeper engagement. Let me now turn it over to Ranking Member Rubio for his remarks before I introduce the panel. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks for your, to your staff for working closely with, with mine to make sure that this came about. And uh, I want at the outset to recognize six students from Florida International University who are here from Miami. I, I'm also an adjunct professor there. Um, everybody, I try to make sure, I don't grade the papers, but they used to all get A's because they're all voters, so but, uh, they don't let me grade anymore. But um, it's a great university, and I'm happy they're here and able to watch this today. Um, so, uh, on, you know, the Western Hemisphere is in a period of extraordinary upheaval. It's got a host of economic problems. Obviously, they've been exacerbated by COVID-19, and it's put a, a tremendous burden on, on many of these countries in the region. So without urgent action, this uh, economic downturn, it could last for a decade. Uh, voters in the region know this, by the way, and so that's why you've seen them more willing than ever to turn to, um, the, to, to the promises, uh, hollow promises of, of, of change uh, in places like Argentina and Peru and Chile and Honduras um, and increasingly in Mexico as well. Uh, unfortunately, many of these new, newer leaders in the region have expressed admiration for the Communist Party and China's model, uh, even as they turn a blind eye, and in many cases are supportive of the regimes that are tra creating tremendous suffering in Cuba and Venezuela and, and in Nicaragua. So Beijing sees this, and uh, they're seizing the, the opportunity to, to grow both their influence and their power in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, as, as an example, their Belt and Road Initiative uses massive infrastructure loans and projects to lure nations into economic and political dependency debt traps that's now spread to Argentina, Brazil, Barbados, and Panama. And in their annual report last year, the Bipartisan U.S.-China Security and Economic Review Commission found that the Communist Party of China is taking advantage of its economic importance and political relationships to encourage governments across the region to make domestic and foreign policy decisions that favor the CCP and undermine democracy and free markets in the region. According to that same report, by the way, the Chinese Communist Party's armed wing, the People's Liberation Army, is seeking to deepen its engagement in the region by funding the construction of ports and space programs and other dual-use infrastructure that, frankly, is pretty clear. It appears to only have no economic purpose but, uh, or to have a limited economic purpose but could serve as future operating basis, even if rotational basis, for a hostile navy uh, close to our nation's shores. And moreover, the Chinese Communist Party is actively exporting its governance model across the hemisphere. It's conducted party-to-party -party engagements uh, with political parties in places such as Chile, Argentina, Cuba, Venezuela, Mexico. These engagements express purpose. It's to teach foreign political parties the superiority of China's authoritarian system. Their intentions in the region are... Uh, is not to be active because they want to make life better for, for people living in the Western Hemisphere. They care only about power and influence. They don't care about stability or economic development. And so even as increasing exports to China boost the economies of some of the nations in these regions, the Communist Party of China is pushing countries to remain dependent on mining and, other, and the export of other natural resources 
instead of partnering with them to develop and industrialize their economies. It's encouraging them to weaken or even break their own environmental, social, and governance regulations by promising them increased investment from China in return. And they do this because they know that chaos in Latin America and the Caribbean would severely hurt us, destabilize us, who they view as their primary and central rival. Uh, If cartels have greater operating freedom to send drugs and violence across our border, it worsens the opioid and fentanyl epidemic and and gang violence in our communities. If if more countries go the way of Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, you'll see massive new waves of illegal immigration and and human trafficking that's associated with it. So we, we simply can't afford to let the Chinese Communist Party expand its influence and absorb Latin America and the Caribbean into its private political economic bloc that leave our country worse off and ensnare the people of Latin America and the Caribbean into a generation of suffering and repression. So I'm I'm hopeful that our nation will begin to address this threat head on and seriously to revitalize our engagement in the region with that in mind. In February, I introduced the Western Hemisphere Security Strategy Act with Chairman Menendez. It's the beginning of doing just that. It, It would enable the U.S. to more effectively resist drug traffickers and authoritarian governments including those of China and Russia, through arrangements with other regional governments. I hope others on this committee co-sponsor this critical step in pushing back against the Communist Party of China and their influence efforts in the region. And I hope to learn from our witnesses today on what else Congress can do and pursue to further address uh, the, the challenge posed to us by the Chinese Communist Party in Latin America and the Caribbean. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to our witnesses for being here. Let me now introduce the witnesses, and then we'll hear from each of you an opening statement and proceed with questions. First, uh, Carrie Hannon. Carrie is a career member of the Senior Foreign, po- Senior Foreign Service, is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Diplomacy, Policy Planning, and Coordination. She covers issues related to the People's Republic of China for the Bureau of Western Affair- Atmosphere Affairs. Her prior Overseas assignments include Bolivia, Argentina, and India, as well as so- spokesperson at the U.S. Embassy in Kamala. Ms. Anand has an undergraduate degree in zoology and a master's degree in Latin American studies with a concentration in tropical conservation, all from the University of Florida. Peter Nadiello. Peter currently serves as the Senior Deputy Assistant Administrator in the U.S. Agency for International Development, Bureau for Latin America and the Caribbean. Before that, he served as U.S. AIDS Mission Director in Kabul, Afghanistan. He has extensive experience in Latin America with USAID as the Mission Director in El Salvador, Colombia, and Bolivia. He also managed USAID's Democracy and Conflict Mitigation Portfolio in Ecuador. And finally, uh, Andrew Herskowitz is the Chief Development Officer at the U.S. International Development Finance Corp., the the DFC. He's a career minister in the Senior Foreign Service and served overseas as Mission Director, Deputy Mission Director, and regional, regional legal advisor for USAID in multiple countries in Latin America and the Caribbean from 2002 to 2013. It's great to have you all before us to discuss this important issue, and I'd like to ask you to make your opening statements in the order that I introduce you, Ms. Hannon. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify on the department's efforts related to the PRC's engagement in the Western Hemisphere. The issue remains one of our most pressing challenges and one that requires close coordination with our interagency colleagues, international organizations, and allies and partners around the world. Just as important, it requires strong cooperation between the administration and Congress, so I welcome continued engagement on these issues with the committee and the chance to be with you today. 
Our strategic goal remains promoting a more dramatic, democratic, inclusive, secure, prosperous, and climate-resilient Western Hemisphere aligned with U.S. values and interests. The pandemic has exacerbated the Hemisphere's longstanding challenges of inequality, corruption, and weak democratic institutions, rendering the region more vulnerable to the PRC's aggressive and coercive tactics. We do not respond to this challenge by trying to force countries to choose between the United States and China, but rather by proving that we are better partners committed to advancing shared interests and values. We work with our allies and partners to help their democracies deliver for their people. We insist the PRC respect our hemisphere's democratic values and international labor, social, and environmental standards as it engages in the region. As the Secretary laid out in his speech in Quito last October, we're helping the region's democracy deliver across all fronts. Our efforts seek to deliver mutual benefits for our partners, not one-sided deals. The Summit of the Americas in June, whose theme is building a sustainable, resilient, and equitable future, will provide a critical opportunity for the President to gather the region's democratic leaders and the agreed concrete outcomes to promote a prosperous and democratic hemisphere. The summit will provide concrete solutions to challenges that our partners face on issues like recovering from the pandemic, creating good-paying jobs, and transitioning to a green future. We also work with like-minded democratic allies and partners from around outside the hemisphere. The European Union, Japan, the Republic of Korea, and Taiwan all help promote stability and growth in the region. With eight of Taiwan's 14 official diplomatic partners in our hemisphere, one of our top goals remains countering the PRC's aggressive campaign to induce countries to switch recognition to Beijing. On the economic front, we focus on ensuring competitive and transparent investment environments that help level the playing field for U.S. companies. We sent more than two dozen U.S. technical delegations to the region since 2018 to share best practices on procurement reform, foreign investment screening, and other initiatives that make countries attractive, competitive business environments. These trainings help our partners ensure their engagements with the PRC meet high standards on transparency. We need to work with partners to help ensure regional investment remains transparent, competitive, and private sector driven while upholding environmental and social safeguards. On security, the proliferation of PRC-linked telecom and surveillance equipment in the region highlights risks to human rights, national security, and privacy. Many of our technical delegations and engagements have, fo have focused on ICT, including 5G and cybersecurity. While the PRC's military presence in the region remains limited, we must maintain our position as the region's principal security partner, including in military cooperation from training to equipment sales. We must also counter the PRC's propaganda and disinformation campaigns in the region. We saw and countered PRC-affiliated social media accounts attempting to redirect concerns about COVID-19 toward bogus campaigns, claims of it originating in the United States. We are doing the same as we see PRC efforts to spread disinformation about Russia's further invasion of Ukraine. The Global Engagement Center works with us and our field-based officers to address propaganda and disinformation, and we build resilience through targeted support to independent civil society organizations and journalists. We are also laying a foundation so that rising generations in the hemisphere know PRC disinformation when they see it and reject it. The Young Leaders of the American Initiatives expands ties between emerging entrepreneurs and U.S. counterparts to support job creation and economic growth. The department's academic academy for women entrepreneurs provides women the tools they need to turn their ideas into successful businesses. And the 100,000 Strong in the Americas Innovation Fund supports educational exchanges that strengthen the link between education, workforce development, and social inclusion to address opportunity gaps. The Western Hemisphere's commitment to democracy has never appeared more urgent as Russia tramples on Ukraine's democracy and threatens to export the Ukraine crisis to the Americas by expanding its military cooperation in, with Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Our region has, with a few exceptions, condemned Russia and supported our efforts to urge Russia to immediately cease its war against Ukraine and seek a diplomatic resolution. Our allies and partners have seen 
the stark contrast between our position on Russia's further invasion and the PRC's position as PRC diplomats elevate the Kremlin's propaganda and seek to protect Russia from condemnation in international bodies. Thank you for this opportunity, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ms. Hannon. Mr. Nadiello. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you so much for the opportunity to testify today. Uh, and what a nice surprise to have uh, this good group of FIU students with us today. We were, we were together yesterday, and um, uh, Samantha Power, our administrator, signed an MOU last week at, uh, at uh, FIU to support our mutual cooperation. Uh, for decades, USAID has been a steadfast and reliable partner to the people of Latin America and the Caribbean to build a more democratic, prosperous, and secure region. As close neighbors, we share interests, values, and goals. While the United States partnership with the Latin American Caribbean region remains strong, concerns about the PRC's growing footprint are real and warranted. We have observed that the PRC's strategy in the Western Hemisphere is broad. It includes economic ties, infrastructure investments, security sector support, education and research programs, as well as disaster and COVID-19 response assistance. While Chinese investment has increased significantly, governments and citizens are increasingly aware of the downsides of working with the Chinese, while trust in the U.S. is growing. According to the America's Barometer Survey, trust in the PRC declined by about 18% uh, for, for the period 2012 to 2021, uh, and currently stands at about 38%. While on the other hand, trust in the United States has rebounded significantly in recent years by more than 18 percentage points and now stands at over 55%. Rather than assuming a defensive posture vis-a-vis -vis the PRC's presence in the region, USAID uses foreign assistance to advance an affirmative American agenda that demonstrates the clear advantages of democracy, economic freedom, and the rule of law as the best foundations to foster the open, just, transparent, and sovereign societies we help to bolster in the hemisphere and around the world. In Ecuador, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, USAID is working with host governments in the private sector to create a welcoming environment for private investment. This will level the playing field for American and allied investors. USAID is also expanding its work in the digital space to offer partner nations secure alternatives with respect to 5G technology and cybersecurity. For example, in Peru, USAID provides technical assistance to the Ministry of Transport and Communications to help strengthen digital security, data governance, digital innovation, and 5G radio spectrum policy frameworks. We're concerned, too, about the PRC's manipulation of the information space, which is why USAID plays a key role in providing unbiased and objective information to inform citizens about the role of the PRC and other external actors in the region. USAID assistance supports civil society and independent media to promote transparency, encourage investigative journalism, and counter mis- and disinformation. USAID's long history of providing both urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term development assistance to countries throughout Latin America and the Caribbean has been a hallmark of the United States' close partnership with the region. In times of need, such as the COVID-19 pandemic, we've stood up high-impact programs to address the terrible health and economic effects of the crisis. To date, the United States has provided approximately 65 million COVID vaccine doses to the region, with more on the way, at no charge and with no strings attached. That's more vaccines than any other, than, than any, any other country has delivered in the region. 
USAID's technical assistance has been important for getting those vaccines into arms around the region. Now more than ever, the United States must stay on course to remain the lead partner in the region's development. While the PRC will continue its efforts to gain influence in the region, the United States maintains an extraordinarily unique and powerful relationship with Latin America and the Caribbean, characterized by unparalleled family, historical, cultural, and trade ties. These serve to bind the fate of the United States with its closest neighbors and constitute important assets upon, we much, upon which we must continue to build bonds of trust and partnership. We're a community with shared democratic values and experiences by working with our allies and partners in accordance with our approach to development, we can continue to strengthen the Western Hemisphere's democracies, its prosperity, and its security. We are clear-eyed about the autocratic alternative, which we know is terribly destructive to freedom and well-being. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Mr. Herskowitz. Good morning, Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, and distinguished members of the subcommittee. Thank you for inviting the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, known as DFC, to testify today on our efforts to catalyze private investment in Latin America and the Caribbean. DFC brings values-driven, high-quality investment support to the region and plays an important role in the whole-of-government approach to countering the People's Republic of China. DFC partners with private businesses and banks to mobilize capital and support of sustainable economic growth, poverty reduction, and development that advances U.S. foreign policy interests. These objectives converge in Latin America and the Caribbean, a region with significant infrastructure needs, high rates of inequality, and pressing development needs, and a region where the PRC has devoted increased attention. We offer companies transparent and accessible financing options that advance development, including equity investments, loans, loan guarantees, political risk insurance, and technical assistance. DFC has more than a $10 billion portfolio in the region, and just last year we did $2.2 billion more. We're excited to use our recent new robust congressional appropriation to ramp up our support for projects in energy, transport, ICT, and other infrastructure, as well as healthcare, agriculture, and financial services. We're especially focused on providing credit to micro, small, and medium enterprises in the region. These businesses are central to the region's recovery from COVID-19, and they're central to creating the jobs that create economic and political stability and that prevent migration. The way DFC deploys capital sends a strong message that the U.S. cares about local communities and the environment. Our financing tools reinforce good governance, avoid unsustainable debt levels, and promote inclusion. These are American values, values and practices that set DFC apart from others. DFC's model is one of partnership and empowerment, unlike other models that involve manipulating, taking, polluting, and exploiting. While the PRC largely finances the work of Chinese companies or provides unsustainable debt to governments, DFC provides financing directly to the people and the businesses of Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as to U.S. companies, U.S. companies that also believe in our high standards and who also care about the development of the people in the countries where they operate. 
DFC prioritizes transactions that improve the lives of the poorest and marginalized populations. Doing so advances both development and our foreign policy goals. The PRC prioritizes only the prosperity of the PRC, often to the detriment of the prosperity of the local people. That's why the U.S. is the preferred partner. By improving the lives of people, DFC transactions foster political and economic stability, which helps cement market-oriented reforms and rule of law. It's important to note that while the BUILD Act asked DFC to prioritize low- and lower-middle-income countries, upper-middle-income countries make up the bulk of the countries in the region. By statute, our work in upper-middle-income countries must be designed to produce significant development incomes, uh, outcomes. I've included in my written testimony examples of projects that illustrate DFC's approach and demonstrate a sharp contrast with the PRC. These projects have a strong focus on local needs and economic empowerment. They advance objectives like reducing migration flows by expanding credit access in Central America for businesses, by providing alternatives to coca production in the Andes, and supporting Venezuelan migrants in the region. One example of a development infrastructure project in DFC's portfolio is a project in Brazil to modernize public lighting, expand internet connectivity, and mitigate flooding risk. Thank you again for the opportunity to discuss how DFC's work represents a positive, democratic alternative to state-directed investments by authoritarian governments. DFC advances foreign policy and development goals. I also thank my fellow witnesses on the panel for their partnership. We work closely with their agencies to identify new deal flow, to provide complementary technical assistance for DFC-supported transactions, and to create an enabling environment for private investment in the region. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Herskowitz. And we'll begin a round of five-minute questions. Um, and I'll begin with you, Ms. Hannon. Um, a lot of the competition with China in the hemisphere and around the world comes down to messaging and information. Um, talk to us about, uh, you testified briefly about this in your opening comments, how your agency's public messaging strategy to counter China um, and how do you engage with the Global Engagement Center to accomplish that goal? Thank you, Chairman, for your question. China spends at least five times as the United States does on public diplomacy and influence activities. But despite their inroads, inroads into the region, the U.S. still is the preferred shared values in the region. We consistently are the preferred partner. Um, they bring every tool of the state and private sector to spread disinformation. And we aim to puncture their narrative by offering open research and to build resilience and limit the space where the PRC manipulation can, can thrive. They have established media cooperative agreements with partners and we have seen journalists self-censor themselves or be encouraged by embassy officials not to tell the truth or shine a light on PRC malign activities. We seek to share credible third-party research with influencers and journalists. We partner with the GEC to do this. We have grant, uh, programs in the region that are strengthening the resilience of populations, civil society, investigative journalists, as well as um, empowering governments to recognize and push back on disinformation and propaganda. I would also recognize Canada as a critical uh, partner in this region addressing disinformation. Um, we work with them closely. 
One other thing I'll point out is that there are 63 Confucius Institutes in uh, Latin America, but there are over um, 120 American spaces run through our embassies, the binational centers. It's a tool where we're able to share our values. We have Fulbright exchanges. I already mentioned Academy of Women Entrepreneurs and our young leaders, all of which allow us to build strong relationships and share the values that we have outlined um, before. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Natiello, one of the issues that comes up a lot in Latin America now is the fact that many of our Latin American countries are, have been supportive of Taiwan, and then that leads to significant pushback uh, from the PRC. Can you talk about USAID's work with Taiwan, especially in Latin America? Thanks for that question, Senator. Um, USAID seeks to actively partner with Taiwan uh, around the region uh, we currently have uh, several uh, ongoing activities with Taiwan uh, around Latin America and the Caribbean. A um, couple examples to share with you today. Uh, we're working with Taiwan in Guatemala uh, on youth development, workforce training, uh, helping young people to find jobs. Uh, Taiwan's been a solid uh, uh, and uh, reliable partner in that effort. Uh, in terms of um, Honduras, we've also worked with uh, uh, with the Taiwan Embassy in Tegucigalpa, uh, and we continue to look for ways to collaborate on agricultural development in Honduras. Specifically, uh, we're hoping to collaborate um, via recently launched uh, USAID Feed the Future uh, project, and we hope to strengthen uh, work with Taiwan to strengthen agricultural market systems to expand economic opportunities and sustainably reduce poverty which is one of the primary drivers of migration and food insecurity in Honduras. Um, and last, uh, we have worked closely with, um, with Taiwan on women's economic empowerment uh, in the Caribbean, specifically in St. Lucia, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines, St. Kitts, uh, and, and Nevis as well. Um, we're also negotiating, we're in the process of negotiating a memorandum of understanding uh, with the Taiwanese at the, at the level of um, uh, USAID worldwide just to cement this partnership so that we can continue uh, to, to uh, work together on development in Latin America and also around the world. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Ms. Hannon, finally, for you, you, in your opening testimony, you referred briefly to the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles in June, an exciting opportunity. The U.S.'s first hosting of the summit in, in more than 20 years. There's so much that we could focus on in that summit. Uh, to what degree do you think uh, there will be a focus on countering Chinese influence, if not as a direct topic, at least addressed as we're talking about ways that the U.S. can more deeply engage in the Americas? Certainly. Thank you for the question. You know, the Secretary laid out his vision in his speech in Quito that uh, our aim is to support uh, democracies in the region so that they can deliver for their people based on our shared values. And the agenda we've laid out at the summit, the five areas of focus, all are, are primarily aimed at that objective. Uh, I expect disinformation will be a topic we talk about uh, in a broader sense as it relates to COVID and more about the resilience and ability to address disinformation in particular. I think that's relevant to this conversation, as well as the need for continued partnership and opportunity for foreign direct investment and finding ways so that these countries and our partners and allies in the region can access either U.S. or private sector-led investment. All of that is some of the objectives we hope to come out of the right. summit that will help. Great. Thank you very much, Senator Rubio. Thank you, uh, Deputy uh, Secretary Hannon. The, the um, Southcom has concerns that the PLA 
and their activities in Latin America and the Caribbean and the hearing they had before the Senate Committee on Armed Services, the SOUTHCOM commander, General Laura Richardson, reported that the PLA donates security equipment and provides training to gain access and win favor with security forces in the region. She also said that the PLA is seeking to establish global logistics and basing infrastructure in our hemisphere in order to project and sustain military power at greater distances. Um, my question is twofold. First, how is the State Department seeking to counter this growing military-to-military ties uh, between the PLA and regional militaries? And, and how is the department interacting with Southcom and other executive departments and educating countries in the region on the risks of increasing ties to the PLA? Thank you, Senator Rubio, for the question. You know, we remain the preferred partner, uh, security partner in the region over the, PR, over the PRC. We collaborate closely with DOD, Southcom, and Northcom on security and defense. General Richardson went into greater detail about the value of IMET and FMF uh, funding to allow the U.S. to continue to partner, train, and equip um, military and security forces in the region. Um, we are working to help show that, uh, to ensure that the PRC military does not gain a foothold in the region in any kind of way that would undermine sovereignty or security of our partners. Um, we maintain that dip, that deep network, um, and, aim to point out that the PRC's ambitions do not stop in the economic space. They are potentially a direct threat to the national security, and we continue to work diplomatically with our allies and partners to raise awareness about the PRC's broader goals and objectives. We are continuing to have those conversations. The, uh, the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act for 2022, uh, supported language that required the State Department to report to Congress by June of this year on efforts by China to expand its presence and influence Latin America and the Caribbean. Can you tell us what the status of that report is and, and when it will be completed? I can't, but I'll check with my team and get an answer to you. Uh, Mr. Natiello, uh, let, me, let me ask. Um, the National Endowment for Democracy report on sharp power in Latin America and the Caribbean, they described the CCP program for reporters and, and media workers uh, to encourage people to people exchanges. These are nothing but... Um, communist-driven junkets to expand their ideology throughout the region. Um, what programs is, are we working with at AID to, to counter this? Thank you for the question, uh, Senator Rubio. Uh, so USAID absolutely shares this concern about these closing democratic spaces in places like Venezuela, um, Nicaragua, certainly Cuba. Uh, and one of the... Uh, uh, one of the interventions or one of the um, investments that we fund uh, in that context is just supporting the free flow of, um, of uh, uncensored information, fact-based information, uh, to citizens in those countries. Um, we work closely with journalists. We do journalist training. Uh, we support them with things like uh, um, investigative journalism. We do protection of journalists as well because many journalists in these places work under uh, – serious threat, uh, and they, they're in harm's way. Um, one example that I could provide uh, is work that we've done in Ecuador uh, with uh, Ecuadorian journalists to, um, to investigate, uh, to analyze, and to report on uh, the issue of um, illegal uh, and unregulated fishing off, uh, off Ecuador's coast. Uh, and we do that because we want to ensure that Ecuadorian citizens have... Um, fact-based information upon which they can make decisions uh, about China and countries like China and whether they want their country working with them. 
those, that's one example of the kind of things that we do with journalists uh, around the region um, on the issue of free flow of information and investigative journalism. Mr. Herskowitz, let me add, the PRCs made the most inroads in their strategic investments in places like Chile, Uruguay, Panama, the Bahamas. It does it by offering financing for infrastructure projects through its Belt and Road Initiative that are otherwise unsupported by American or other international investors. Is, is the DFC ready to finance projects in those countries as an alternative to B, BRI lending? Thank you for the question, Senator. Many of the countries that you've mentioned are high-income countries, and DFC uh, doesn't currently have legislative authority to support investments in the high-income countries. But we continue to look for opportunities to support strategic investment, whether it's in infrastructure, mining, or other strategic investments that will advance U.S. values. Well, that's why we have an Inter-American Development Bank. So isn't the fact that they're classified as high income an argument uh, for supporting a capital increase uh, to the Inter-American Development Bank and its private sector arm, IDB Invest, which doesn't have those restrictions? in terms, of, you're, you're asking whether or not we should be supporting an increased investment in, in the Inter-American Development Bank? Is that your, your question? That, that's right. If those countries don't qualify for the programs you're offering because they're classified as high income, the alternative would be IDB Invest. Yeah, I would defer, I would defer on that question to our colleagues at the U.S. Treasury who are making their recommendations about our, our interactions with the regional development banks. Thank you. By WebEx, Senator Cardin. I want to follow up on Senator Rubio's point, but from a slightly different perspective. Uh, Yes, we have countries in our hemisphere that are problematic as it relates to values and democracy, such as Venezuela, uh, Cuba, and Nicaragua. But we pride ourselves in our hemisphere of countries that pride on being democratic and supporting the same values that we do. So when we saw the image of President Xi with um, President Putin at the Olympics, Uh, That should have had a powerful message about China's priorities, where Mr. Putin at that time had already planned the invasion into Ukraine. And since the invasion in Ukraine, China's been on the wrong side of history. We know China uses soft power. We know about the Confucius Institutes. We know about people to people. Uh, Senator Rubio was talking about some of that use of soft power. So my question, I guess, to Secretary Hanna is that are we taking advantage of the fact that the countries of our hemisphere generally support us in regards to promoting democracy and Western values uh, and making it clear that China's intentions are well beyond just setting up a nice relationship with people to people, but to control through economic issues or military issues, the, the future of what country will dictate value globally in in setting the rules. Uh, It seems to me that's a powerful tool that we have in our hemisphere. I'm curious as to whether we have a strategy to utilize that. Thank you, Senator. I'd like to point out that 27 member states joined the U.S. and voted for the March 2nd U.N. General Assembly resolution condemning Russian's actions in Ukraine. And those same countries joined us in supporting the March 24th U.N. General Assembly resolution expressing concern about the humanitarian situation in Ukraine. China abstained on both those resolutions. China is clearly out of step with the Western Hemisphere and the great majority of our partners who do few when it comes to the views of this invasion. Uh, We have uh, continued to partner with our allies and partners in the region 
to point that out, to show that we are the, the preferred partner and share the same values. It really is a campaign of desperation by the Russians, and the PRC amplifying their biolab or other disinformation is ludicrous and untrue. Um, we also continue to stand with the people of Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela, where authoritarian governments that have Russia's backing have stifled democratic aspirations. Um, this is a top priority for us to continue to support the democracies in the region. Thank you. I, I appreciate your statement on that, but I was looking to some specific action strategy here uh, as to how we are making it clear to our traditional partners in our hemisphere that when they set up um, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, when they do economic ties with, with China, they're supporting Mr. Putin. They're supporting a way of life that is contrary to the values we all stand for. And yes, we want to have good relations with all countries. That's not the issue. But the issue is that China, they're naive about China's ultimate intentions. So it would seem to me we need a much more aggressive policy wrapped in our values to make it clear it's time to, to make decisions on what side of values you're going to stand on. Again, we don't want to cut off ties between countries with China, but it goes well beyond that, China's strategy in our hemisphere. It doesn't seem to me that we have a strategy to really counter this moment in history where China's on the wrong side of history and is assisting Mr. Putin in the atrocities that are taking place in Ukraine. Thank you, sir. We do use every diplomatic, economic, and uh, public diplomacy, as well as foreign assistance that we have to counter China's influence in the region. And we think that every government, and share this point regularly, that they need to make good decisions when it makes when it comes to providing for its citizens and protecting national interests and who they choose to partner with when, when trying to deliver on those promises to their, to their populaces. I appreciate that. I, I would hope that we would have a more definitive response considering where we are at this moment in history with Mr. Putin violating every international norm in his uh, campaign in Ukraine and China on Mr. Putin's side. It seems to me that presents us a unique opportunity, particularly with our closest uh, friends in our hemisphere. So, uh, and I, I recognize that that the USAID has a role here, and 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 so does the uh, the financing arms. But it seems to me all of us have to to recognize that this is a moment of history. To decide on what side you're going to stand on, on good or evil, and China has made that decision, and we should we should capitalize on that. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Next up is Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thanks to all of the testifiers. Uh, China's uh, BRI uh, energy project financing provides the money for about 70% of the world's coal projects over the next five years. We all know that Xi Jinping announced that China will no longer build coal plants abroad, but given the propensity of the CCP to go back on its word, uh, Ms. Hannon, what do we do about monitoring the fidelity to that pledge and assuming that they will try to go back on their word? What tools do we have to provide alternatives in the hemisphere to the continued financing of coal and other fossil energy projects via China? Could you bring could you bring the microphone closer microphone. to your face if you could? 
Thanks. Tech problems. Um, we have seen recent U.S. investments in critical infrastructure, um, including development of ports and data uh, science centers. Um, I can't really speak today to the specific issues of coal. I'm happy to go back and get an answer for you and provide that to you um, directly. Okay. Well, l listen, that is one of their primary means of economic control and relationships that they develop. And so um, I'd like a fulsome response. Um, Mr. Natiella, it looked like you wanted to respond to this. I, I'm sorry I gave that impression, Senator. I, I, I would simply say that, you know, USAID's focus really here is, uh, is on helping our partner nations in the region um, modernize their energy systems, their energy grids, and their energy mix to include much more renewable energy. The Caribbean is way too dependent on uh, fossil fuels. That's a, uh, that's a vulnerability for them. They know that particularly today when the price of oil is so high. And so USAID has for some time now been focused on helping them to uh, just diversify the mix of their, um, uh, of, of their energy sources and help them shift over to uh, renewable. I first. think we have a two to four year window to move into this space in the hemisphere to take advantage of President Xi's promise. Um, I think after that, all bets are going to be off, and the, there's a pretty good likelihood that they may go back on their word. And so, more, so the more that we can move into that space and provide economic alternatives and fuel and energy security for the region, it'll meet our climate objectives, but it also aligns very nicely with our national security and diplomatic uh, objectives. Um, I want to talk about um, deforestation um, China's import of agriculture, imports of agricultural commodities drive more deforestation globally than any other market, including the United States and the EU combined. This has enormous implications for Latin America and beyond. Um, I introduced the Forest Act, which creates a framework for the federal government to deter commodity-driven illegal deforestation around the world. But until the bill comes law, becomes law, what can the State Department do, Ms. Hannon, to reduce demand for these commodities and their climate impact? The PRC has demonstrated that what it wants is access to raw materials worldwide, whether it be um, wood or um, lithium or any other material that allows them to continue to support. Or f and they also are aggressive in looking for food, um, food resources. Um, we continue to seek to work with like-minded partners and allies to offer higher quality and transparently procured government infrastructure investment that will provide an alternative to PRC programs in the region. Just so we're clear, I'm talking about commodity-driven de uh, deforestation because we have the Lacey Act. We, we have some measure of an international regime. It doesn't work perfectly around forest products themselves. But the primary driver of deforestation internationally is that they clear cut and then grow commodities as agricultural inputs, primarily soy. And so we need to get a collective strategy around that. First, we need to pass my bill. I know every member of every committee says we need first to pass my bill. But failing that, the State Department has plenty of tools to implement a strategy. And I'll just offer one last question for the record uh, uh, regarding CCP influence uh, on press freedom, which I look forward to your answer on. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Schatz. Next up is Senator Shaheen. Well, thank you to Senators Kane and Rubio for um, 
holding this hearing today. And Senator Rubio, it's great to have these students from Florida who are here. Next time, bring some women with you, will you? Um, we want to make sure that women participate in foreign policy as well. Um, I'm, I don't know if everybody can see this. It's kind of low. Um, but we'll hold, yeah. Uh, this is a picture is worth a thousand words. This was handed out in the Armed Services Committee about a year ago by Southcom. And it shows Chinese influence in Latin America. And because you're far away, you can't really see what the key says, but this dark area, those countries are all members of the Belt and Road Initiative. There are 19 of 31 countries that have joined that. Um, the stars are an indication of where China is involved in port projects, and 29 um, are ongoing and completed that China is involved in with port projects. Um, 25 of 31 countries host Chinese infrastructure projects, and there have been 44 heads of state meetings with Latin American leaders by China since 2015. They have a goal of 500 billion in trade by 2025 that dwarfs what we are looking at in the United States. And I think this is important to show the challenge that we face. And while I appreciate um, all of your testimony this morning and think it's very helpful, um, I think we've got to be realistic about what we're facing. And this clearly indicates the challenge. So I, I wonder if any of you could speak to what you think the main reasons are that so many Latin American and Caribbean countries have signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative. Ms. Hannon? Well, uh, thank you for the question. The uh, part, partners and allies in the region want to deliver to their populations. There's a $150 billion infrastructure deficit in the region right now. And low-cost, state-backed loans are very appealing to our partners. Um, but what we do when the PRC aims to capitalize on these potential um, vulnerabilities that have been aggravated by uh, the pandemic, we focus on helping them to deliver uh, an investment climate where U.S. and trusted private sector-led investment can take place. We want to support the recovery of the region from the pandemic. We raise concerns about BRI projects uh, that they do not respect international standards or regional standards when it comes to labor environment and social uh, uh, practices. But what we do try to do, we've sent over two dozen technical delegations to the region to help with procurement and investment screening. We do what we can to help our partners be able to deliver and create an environment where private-led investment um, and or U.S. companies have an environment where they can uh, offer up alternatives to these governments. Well, one area, obviously, that's very important for us as we're um, trying to address American um, support and influence is in ambassadors. And I would point out that my understanding is China has ambassadors in every country in Latin America. Can you tell me how many countries that we currently have ambassadors in? 29 embassies and 23 consulates where we, we have, have either an ambassador or a principal officer. approved for those countries? We currently have, I believe, eight 
that are pending and we have four slots open, but we have very talented charge de affairs that are working at those embassies and still carrying the mission forward that we have. But you would agree that it's really important for us to get those ambassadors appointed. And I think that speaks to this committee's work and the need to move on those nominations as soon as we can get them. Thank you for raising that. It helps everyone. Um, let me also um, raise a concern about COVID because one of the things that's pictured on this map is that it says that eight countries are producing, using, testing, or interested in purchasing Chinese COVID-19 vaccine. And Mr. Natiello, you talked about the importance of our sharing our vaccine and um, the interests that um, people have in countries with having the vaccines that are being produced in the United States because they are more effective. Um, it's very disturbing to me that we have a COVID bill um, pending in the Senate. Five hundred five billion of that was to go to help address vaccine distribution in countries around the world. And my understanding is that that got dropped out last night in terms of the package because of objections from our Republican colleagues. I wonder if you could talk about how important it is for us to continue to share vaccines with countries that need the COVID vaccine. Thank you for that, Senator. Um, as, uh, as Administrator Power has said many times, uh, it's critical that uh, we help keep our neighbors safe because that keeps us safe. Uh, and so uh, we at USAID uh, and with other parts of the U.S. government have worked hard uh, to get those 65 million donated vaccines into arms. The job is not done yet. We continue to work hard on it. Um, the administration's goal is uh, 70 percent of the population uh, in the region and around the world having two doses by September. So we're not there yet. So we continue to need to not only donate vaccines. It's one thing to get vaccines on the tarmac at the airport. It's a whole other thing, as we all know, to get it in somebody's arm. Right. And so USAID provides uh, 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 significant technical assistance to governments around the region to do that, to you know, work on the cold chains, to work on the logistics, to work on the planning, et cetera. And um, the resources that the U.S. taxpayer and the Congress have gener generously prov provided us with have been is extraordinarily helpful to meet this challenge. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. My time is up, but I assume you would agree with me that it's a real loss if we're not able to provide that additional support to continue to distribute those vaccines in countries where they're needed. Yes, thank you. You don't need to answer that. Thank you. It was a rhetorical question. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Senator Rich is next, and I understand Senator Rich has a valuable guest with him. Well, actually, I do. My grandson's with me today. He's on uh, a break, so thank you for that. Uh, first of all, let me associate myself with the remarks of uh, Senator Shaheen. I, I completely agree that um, we need uh, ambassadors in, in, in these countries. Uh, like I was a governor, I understand you can't govern without uh, having your team in place. And uh, we spar over that all the time on this committee. And it's unfortunate it gets caught up in the politics that it does. And I, I appreciate the remark of the State Department that we have very talented charge in these places. That's really important. But it is no substitute for the uh, for, for having the ambassador. We all know as we deal with these countries that uh, the head of state particularly 
uh, he or she wants to deal with the uh, with the ambassador, not with a charge. So anyway, I, I agree with you, Senator, and uh, we we continue to work on it. It's it's cumbersome, and uh, it's probably at some point in time we're going to have to have a look at moving these along quicker. I mean, I I see I watched in the last administration, this administration. I suspect we're going to get to the end, and there's going to be some countries that never did have a. a uh, ambassador during that period of time. Um, for, uh, thank you to the uh, uh, ranking member and chairman of this uh, subcommittee for holding this hearing. I think it's really important in that uh, most Americans really have no idea about how ubiquitous the Chinese influence has become uh, around the world. Uh, we, we deal with it all the time. We're not surprised every time we cross their track, but I think most Americans are, are fully uh, uninformed with that. Uh, even even more importantly is the uh, is the investment in the in the trade that takes place with China, and I'm we're told that uh, in this region that the United States is the largest investor. When I talk about the region, I'm I'm talking about the Western Hemisphere and and also the Caribbean. We're told uh, the U.S. is the largest in, in, investor in the region, yet China has become the largest trade partner in the region. And uh, it really, really ought not be that way. So, uh, Mr. Nadiello, could you uh, talk for a minute about, A, how this has happened, and uh, B, how we reverse it? Thank you, Senator. And and w what I can say on that is that you know, USAID's focus has been on uh, – um, really helping uh, our partner nations in the region to help create the enabling environment uh, and a level, a, a level playing field uh, for um, greater U.S. investment in the region. Um, we do that through things like uh, transparent reforms to uh, procurement codes to ensure that procurements are fair, they're transparent, that there's a level playing field. Um, and, and, and we do... I, Again, we do that around the region. Uh, one example I could share with you is what we recently did in Colombia with an energy auction uh, where we helped uh, the Colombians understand um, the best approaches and the best rules for uh, 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 approaching the challenge of um, uh, uh, energy auctions and increasing uh, uh, the supply of clean energy in their economies. Uh, that led to um, you know, not nine firms stepping up. None of those were Chinese. Several of those were U.S. firms. Um, they came in with bids that were 15% below the market price for energy in Colombia. So it was a win in terms of uh, investment. It was a win in terms of trade. It was a win in terms of, uh, of um, the environment. And, and that's, that's just one example of the kind of things that USA does around the region um, on uh, uh, trying to enhance investment. I appreciate that. Mr. Herskowitz, this is more in your wheelhouse. You want to take a run at this? So... So one of the things that I thought was wonderful about the Build Act when you created DFC is that you lightened up the U.S. nexus requirement where previously we were only supporting transactions so there was some strong U.S. nexus. And while it seems counterintuitive that lightening that up would actually create opportunities for U.S. businesses, let me explain why this is great. What we see in a lot of countries is that there are sometimes family-owned businesses or businesses that existed for a long time that are often bidding on the infrastructure projects and other types of projects when we have that connection to that local company, that then gives us insights into trade and investment leads. I, I think back to a, a time when I visited a, uh, a company in Ghana once, and it was a Power Africa-supported transaction. 
that was not a U.S. developer, but they sat down and they put up on the screen 19 different U.S. companies that were providing services uh, or, or other types of uh, products on that transaction. So one of the things we've been doing increasingly at DFC is we've been doing town halls and, and working closely with USAID and State Department to identify these types of local companies so that we can increase that two-way trade and also identify trade and investment leads for U.S. companies. Well, thank you. I, I think it's critical we focus on this. I mean, th this this is a situation that's in our own backyard and gotten away from us, and, and uh, obviously it's, it'll be a challenge, but we need to focus on it. My time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Risch, next up is Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I mean, this is all pretty simple to me. China has a plan. We don't have a plan. If we want countries to be grateful to us for providing a vaccine that, that does work, we have to fund it. A vision without funding is an hallucination. So they're going to go, they're pragmatists in all these countries all around the world. Are we going to do it or not? Are we going to signal that we're uh, in the game or are we not? Very simple. Um, we now got a bill. We call it the Competes Act. We know it's the China bill. Actually, we're not supposed to say that word. Why is that? Well, because our semiconductor industry failed us, just totally failed us. So the American taxpayer is going to have to bail them out. That's sad. That's not a plan. That's not a plan that our country had or our companies had. Um, we uh, were stalling on passing a bill uh, that could create a clean energy revolution in our country. Um, why is China in? These countries, well, they want their natural resources. They want the lithium. They want the other sources. Well, if Donald Trump says we're not going to increase the fuel economy standards of the vehicles which we drive, if he says we're not going to have standards for solar and wind, well, then our companies all say, well, we're not going to have a plan because we won't have to have a plan to go to other countries in order to get the natural resources that we want. And meanwhile, China says, what a great economic opportunity for us to move into the future. Thank you, American private sector. Thank you, American automotive industry, for not wanting to improve your fuel economy standards. Thank you to um, the Trump administration for uh, stopping, slowing down dramatically the deployment of wind and solar in our country. Great. But don't be surprised that they're going to Chile, that they're going to Bolivia, that they're going to Argentina to lock up these resources. I'll just give you some really scary, scary, scary uh, numbers. Um, there are 86 million tons of identified lithium resources on the planet, on the planet. 49 million of the 86 million are in the Golden Triangle. That's Argentina, Bolivia, Chile. So what's our plan? If, if I ask you to describe what our plan is in order to make sure that those resources are directed towards American industries and interests, uh, and that we're doing it in an environmentally sound way, not the way the Chinese do it. What's our plan? China has a plan. We're better than China, but we can't beat them without a plan. <laughs> and that's where we are right now. And then they use that, that economic leverage, as a way to influence politics. And then the politics says, well, no longer should you be supporting Taiwan. Just back off and be with us in the UN on other issues as well. So it's a pretty simple formula, but I don't, I, there's just no way that this is not in any way tied to what the corporate uh, 
side of our country wants. And so in China, they put together the plan. Then they unleash their private sector. Here, um, we have been let down. Four years of Trump was a disaster. These natural resources have been gobbled up all around the world. It's a, a broader story. Uh, the semiconductor crisis is a story that should have had an American plan. We didn't have a plan. I mean, my God, we're going to vote American taxpayers' money in order to subsidize what should have been the wealthiest country, uh, companies in the world. Uh, and why? Because we're afraid of China and Taiwan and the semiconductor industry in China. Where's our plan? So you're down there, you're trying to do your, your job. And I guess what I would do is just ask one question. I know that one-third of the funding uh, from the uh, Development Bank is intended to be focused towards uh, climate-related issues. Could you talk a little bit about that? And what is the plan for us to be dedicating those resources in the years ahead? Uh, and hopefully we will get full funding from all the members of the committee. Otherwise, we're going to be in total violation of the first law of holes, which is when you're in one, stop digging, because the holes we're in don't find lithium. They don't find any other valuable resources. We're just absolutely going to have crisis after crisis, all related to a lack of planning. So if you would, I would love to hear what the plan is for the bank. Thank you, Senator, for the question. Um, I think as we've all learned both from the COVID pandemic as well as from the current um, war in Ukraine, the importance of diversifying the global supply chain and bringing some either home or closer is something that we all agree on. And DFC has been very aggressive in that regard. Even when we look at the issues of solar supply chain, we've taken very seriously the issue of the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang to try to, to, to see where we can find opportunities to, produ to produce solar outside of that area as well. Um, recently, DFC approved a $500 million transaction to produce solar panels that don't rely on polysilicon with First Solar, a U.S. company with operations in Ohio and Arizona. Um, so, so we continue to look for these opportunities to diversify the supply chain, working on critical minerals as well and other, other, the other types of minerals and inputs that are going to be important for us to look towards the future and having a much more uh, diverse energy uh, and technology supply. We're also looking at other technologies as well that will allow us to be leaders in the future. A lot of the leading technologies in the renewable energy space are coming from the United States. We look at things like long-duration energy storage, um, hydrogen production. So we continue to work closely with U.S. companies and international partners to see what we can do to take that long-term view so that we're not set up for failure in the future. Okay, and, uh, and I, all I would say in summary is if we don't pass this climate package right now, there's going to be a lot of crocodile tears that are going to be shed in another three or four years um, uh, saying, oh, how did we get in this situation where China now controls all these additional sources as well? And, of course, that just translates into politics. That's how they buy their way in. And, by the way, it helps their economic security and it helps their national security at the same time. And it actually helps them to be the leader on climate security uh, because they'll be the leaders in these critical uh, clean energy areas. So – it's a lose, 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 and ultimately we lose our moral authority as well because we are not at the table saying we're actually doing it. You cannot preach temperance from a bar stool. You got to have a plan, and we don't have a plan, and uh, and so we can have the hearings on the on semiconductors or lithium or you know all electric vehicles. We can have all what happened, how did it all go wrong? There's no plan, 
and they're capitalized upon it, and a lot of it just comes back to this clean energy agenda and the natural resources that are needed. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Senator Kane. Uh, Senator Markey, just a follow-up point on your concern on semiconductors. I share your concern on our strategic posture with semiconductors, and I want to thank you and all the members of this committee for supporting the legislation that I put forward along with Senator King to shorten the permitting process for semiconductor fabrication plants here in America. Uh, we took the FAST 41 language from the infrastructure program, applied it to strategic industries like chip fabrication here in America, and essentially we'll take a five-year permitting process and compress that down to 18 months. We're not going to skip any processes, but we're going to make the process better and more efficient. That will make us more competitive. It doesn't require subsidies to do that. And so if you think about the pace of technology change in semiconductor industries, this is going to help us a great deal. I'd like to turn um, my first question for this panel uh, to uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Hannon. Um, and I'd like to talk to you about something that's a, a deep concern for me. As an American, as a parent, uh, what has been happening here, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, drug overdose deaths in America just over the past year have now exceeded 100,000 young Americans. We read about it every day. Mexico remains the major transit and production point for the illegal drugs that are coming into this country. And behind all of this is the Chinese Communist Party who are rooting fentanyl and the precursor chemicals to make fentanyl into Mexico. Back, in the, the, back at the G20 that was held in Buenos Aires, I was actually dialed into the call as um, we were preparing for a meeting between President Xi and President Trump. President Trump told President Xi he wanted to stop the flow of fentanyl coming into America. President Xi agreed to this. But he never agreed to stop sending the fentanyl and its precursors into Mexico. And what we've seen now with the collapse of our southern border is a dramatic increase in the flow. As I mentioned, 100,000 deaths from overdose just this past year. It's the largest, largest killer of young people in America today. And I, I'm very, very concerned that this has now become a major national security crisis. This drug e epidemic that's killing tens of thousands of Americans is becoming a national security crisis here in America. And I'd like to know, um, Secretary Hannon, specifically what percent of the drugs coming across the border include fentanyl coming from China? Sir, I'd have to get you that exact number. I don't have it in hand. Does the State Department have this information? I'd have to check with my colleagues in INL and others to, to confirm that. Given the level of the epidemic that we've got right here, given the fact that this is a war that's being waged by the Chinese Communist Party through Mexico on our youth, I think the State Department ought to have this data at its fingertips. I hope that you will get this to my staff as soon as possible, because if we can't know the numbers, how do we hold China accountable? Do you have a plan to hold China accountable for this? We work closely with all of our partners in the region to address the various issues that we face with the PRC. This being one of the, the most important, as you've indicated, we will continue to, to uh, dialogue with the Mexicans and hold, make every effort we can to hold the Chinese accountable for what they're doing. Could, in this. could you sort of set aside the State Department ease rather than partners in dialogue? Can you tell me what entities you're partnering with to address the fentanyl and the precursors that are coming into Mexico and are coming across this border to kill our kids? I'm going to include that in my answer to you when we, when we provide you the numbers. Sir. I'm shocked that you don't have a ready answer for this. Given the magnitude of the problem, this should be first and foremost in terms of your priorities. It certainly is in mine. Next question I'd like to talk about the DFC. Um, 
Mr. Hershwitz, uh, last week I wrote to the CEO of the DFC, Scott Nathan, noting that the year-long increase in energy prices makes it clear that America Energy's role in the global market is critical for both our national security and for the health of the economy. And dependence on strategic adversaries like China and Russia and their allies like Venezuela, depending on them for our energy means, makes us unacceptably vulnerable. American energy companies have world-leading expertise in all sectors, and the DFC should be encouraging their efforts in all sectors. So my first question is, what efforts are the DFC undertaking to help fund and enable investments that would encourage U.S. companies to deliver cheap, reliable, and environmentally responsible energy for the world, including fossil fuel, nuclear fuels, and the mining industries? Thank you, Senator, for the question. DFC's current development strategy has set a very ambitious goal of doing $10 billion of investment in the energy sector. We also recognize the importance of not just energy for development and for, for production, but for energy access as well. So we also have a goal of making sure that at least 10 million people get access to electricity from the work that we're doing. Our approach with respect to energy still remains largely technology agnostic. We look at a few factors. Number one, we have to look at what resources the country has and what makes sense for the country itself. The transactions have to be commercially viable. We don't support any technology for the sake of supporting a technology, but we want to make sure that this is something that the private sector would support. We want to make sure there's a diverse mix of energy resources as well. Some countries are blessed with fossil fuels. Some countries are blessed with wind and, and, and wind in the sun. So we really look to see what makes sense both domestically but regionally as well, to the extent that we can encourage countries to trade power so they get greater efficiency, that's important to us as well. So we look forward to continuing to, to working with you and engaging with you in this area. Yeah, my, my great concern is that I don't want us to miss opportunities where we could help a country move incrementally in the right direction and in that void have other nations uh, that perhaps don't have our environment uh, you know, in front of mind come in with dirtier solutions when we have an opportunity to incrementally help just because we're, we're so focused on maybe an end goal that technologically just isn't appropriate for the nation, for the nation we're trying to help at that time. Yeah. We prioritize development and geopolitical significance in the work that we're doing as laid out in the BUILD Act, and this is why we continue to look at all technologies. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Haggerty. Chairman Menendez. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And with authoritarian regimes uh, threatening freedom, prosperity, and democracy in the Western Hemisphere and around the world, this hearing couldn't be more timely, so I thank you and the ranking member for holding it. Across Latin America and the Caribbean, China is using everything from finance to fishing to technology, even vaccine access to influence uh, a greater and greater share of its uh, abilities within the hemisphere. In the face of these challenges, the United States can't stand idly by. We have to do more to compete in the region. And we have to stop taking our own hemisphere for granted. That's why last Congress I introduced the Advancing Competitiveness, Transparency, and Security in the Americas Act. It was the first ever legislation focused on strengthening U.S. competition in Latin America and the Caribbean. It expanded our financial tools and diplomatic presence. It countered corrosive economic practices. It worked to secure the region's physical and digital infrastructure, and it boosted support for civil society across the Americas. And I'm pleased to see many of its provisions were included in the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which were on the verge of passing. There are important steps as we deal with authoritarian threats, uh, but we can't stop there. 
and I, I have a real concern. I've, I've heard some of the testimony or questions raised by some of my colleagues. I share in them. You know, China is aggressively all over the hemisphere. I can't tell you how many leaders in the hemisphere I've been talking to as they face the challenges of energy and are ill-equipped to deal with those challenges. We see the challenges we're having ourselves. I understand the president just announced a million uh, barrels a day released from the SPRO, but they don't have a SPRO. And in countries like uh, some of these countries, the Dominican Republic, uh, the Caribbean, and others, that effect can create civil unrest. If the, if the prices spike up, we're going to have a huge problem. We have a huge problem coming out of the pandemic with the reality that, you know, uh, IMF requirements without being eased and extended over time, not relieved, not forgotten, but eased and extended over time, these countries are not going to be able to meet it. Look what we did to spend to try to meet the pandemic in our own country. They don't have that ability. So, and we see the consequences of this in civil unrest as we saw in Colombia when it was pursuing an IMF-related uh, element. It just seems to me that we do not have a strategic, comprehensive plan. And so uh, when China goes and says to one of these countries, I won't mention them, but the president told me himself, we're, we'll give you $400 million. When China uh, says, you know, we'll finance your energy costs, uh, you know, the reality is that we may not be able to go dollar for Rembembe, but at the end of the day, we're going to have to have a much more robust response. And so, uh, you know, I, I think of the IDB, for example, as an entity that can help us meet that response. But for some reason, the administration seems to have a challenge working with the IDB, even though the IDB, from everything I've seen in their agenda so far, is doing everything the administration would want to see. And finally kicked out China to a large degree. China was using the IDB as their sales agency in the hemisphere. Imagine that, mind-boggling. And our directors there basically allowed it to happen. Thankfully, there's new leadership there that is moving in a different direction. Leadership that includes Taiwan, which I'm sure China won't be happy about. So, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Hannon, do you agree that the Inter-American Development Bank plays a critical role in sovereign lending? Wouldn't a capital increase expand that role? I leave that to my colleagues at USTR to comment on that, but I do agree that we need to find additional financing mechanisms in Latin America to give our partners there more, more ability to partner with other outlets than just the PRC. Well, unless I'm mistaken... Your title says you are the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Diplomacy, for Policy, for Planning, and for Coordination of the Western Hemisphere. Why, why can't you speak to that question? We have a, we have a broad uh, strategy to address China in the region that touches on all of the issues that you have raised, as well as the remainder of the senators on the, on the honored senators. Uh, I, I am reluctant to comment on another agency's goal, but I do think we need to see increased um, opportunities for U.S.-led US and other private sector to invest in the region. Well, it's shocking to me that, that you can't comment 
on the Inter-American Development Bank as a tool that is very viable, because I, I don't know, the DFC has some tools, but it's limited depending upon the nature of the country's development or not, whether it can participate in it or not. Um, so what are we going to use? Because if China's doing all of this and all of us see it up here, if we can see it, and it's not our job to be in the midst of this day in and day out, as it is your job, then something's wrong. There's, there's, there's a, a clear disconnect. Let me ask you, maybe that you can answer this one for me. Uh, the U- U.S. Coast Guard has called illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing, otherwise known as IUU fishing, the primary global maritime security threat. IUU fishing fuels drug trafficking. It perpetuates forced labor practices. It threatens biodiversity, sovereignty, economic livelihoods of affected countries. The People's Republic of China is the largest perpetrator of IUU fishing. An expansive report by the Associated Press last fall implicated China's distant water fleets in IUU fishing in Latin America and the Caribbean. Chinese flag vessels in the region increased at least 13-fold between 2009 and 2020, and the report documented them engaging in extensive illegal fishing off the coast of Argentina, Chile, Ecuador, and Peru. What concrete steps is the State Department currently talking and planning to take in coordination with the interagency and alongside our diplomatic partners in the region to confront Chinese IUU fishing in Latin America and the Caribbean? Thank you for the question, Senator. In addition to Southcom, Geot of South, and Coast Guard's effort to enable our partners to address IUU fishing, um, we are doing a lot to draw media attention to this pernicious problem as coastal countries in Latin America, including Ecuador, Chile, and Argentina, all are experiencing sustainable PRC fishing practices as well as the distant water fleet off the coast of Argentina. We are pressuring the PRC to be transparent, to enforce their own zero-tolerance policy and fulfill their state responsibilities. It is an environmental threat. It is a threat to food security. We worry about forced labor on the fishing vessels. And we also are looking forward to a new opportunity to partner uh, to support the CMAR, which is the Eastern Tropical Pacific Marine Corridor that the countries of Ecuador, Costa Rica, Colombia, and Panama announced at the COP26 as an interesting regional initiative to help protect a more than 500,000 square kilometer region that's critical to fisheries as well as environmentally important. Well, they they seem to be able, Mr. Chairman, to do it with impunity. So some, some, something is not working in terms of our engagement in this regard in our own hemisphere. And for these countries, fishing is a critical element uh, of both sustenance as well as uh, national income. So I look forward to, uh, uh, to working uh, to have a more aggressive response. And, and uh, I'll save my question for digital authoritarianism uh, for the record. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, and thank you to the first panel of witnesses. When the, when the hearing ends, I will just remind everyone that if members of the committee have questions, they can submit them by the close of business tomorrow, April 1, and I would encourage members of the first panel to respond promptly to those questions. If asked, thank you for appearing today. Let me now ask uh, the witnesses on panel two to come forward. Uh, as you're coming forward, I'm going to introduce you, and then you can be ready for your uh, opening statements. We have a second panel of private witnesses to talk about this important topic. Um, And I want to introduce Ms. Margaret Myers, who's the director of the Asia and Latin America program at the Inter-American Dialogue, and also Dr. Evan Ellis, who's the senior associate 
at the Americas Program at the Center of Strategic and International Studies. Ms. Myers established the Inter-American Dialogues China and Latin America Working Group in 2011 to examine, examine China's growing presence in Latin America and the Caribbean. She's published numerous articles on Chinese leadership dynamics, international capital flows, Chinese agricultural policy, and Asia-Latin American relations. She received her bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia, conducted graduate work at GW, uh, Zhejiang University of Technology, and the John Hopkins University Nanjing University Center for Chinese American Studies. Dr. Ellis, Evan Ellis, is a senior associate for, um, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a research professor of Latin American Studies at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute, and he focuses on the region's relationships with China and other non-Western hemisphere actors, as well as transnational organized crime and populism in the region. He has previous, previously served as Secretary of State's policy planning staff with responsibility for Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as international narcotics and law enforcement issues, recently published a timely book on this topic, China Engages Latin America, Distorting Development and Democracy. I want to thank both of you for joining, and in the order that I introduced you, please now uh, deliver opening statements, then we'll move to questions. Good morning. Uh, I would like to thank Senator Kane, Senator Rubio, and the other distinguished subcommittee members for the opportunity to be here today. The Latin American and Caribbean region has never been a top priority region in China's foreign policy. It was the last to be included after the Arctic in the Belt and Road Initiative. And yet, after two decades now of extensive economic and political engagement, China has, over time, established a degree of influence over aspects of decision-making in many parts of the region, as we've established already. Most of this influence, I would say, is indirect. It comes from strong economic ties and occasional dependence on China's export market. With economics in mind, many Latin American governments have a vested interest in accommodating China where possible. As a result, we've seen countries adjust regulations to attract more Chinese companies, and even effects on democratic governance, as some leaders feel at liberty to erode democratic institutions, knowing that they will still be able to access Chinese capital even if they do so. Other influence, as we've noted, is more direct in nature, aimed at shaping views of China and of China's positions on wide-ranging policy matters. We are seeing a major push to grow educational exchanges, media outreach, security cooperation, tech policy coordination, and outreach to establish and up-and-coming officials and policymakers, all in an effort to increase and enhance China's soft power across the region. In other cases, China has used the tools at its disposal to advance political aims. Vaccines, as we've noted, were used to reward or discourage decision-making on Taiwan, for example. China's influence is not automatic. Of course, some countries have pursued resource governance policies and policies of diversification that help them to avoid dependence on any one partner. In others, like Mexico, China's economic influence is relatively negligible. And even in countries such as Venezuela and Cuba, which depend heavily on China's assistance, officials in those countries have sometimes resisted some of China's many proposals, uh, much to China's disdain. On another note, um, I'd suggest that China-U.S. competition in Latin America need not be entirely zero-sum. But in practice, China's approach to deal-making, its courting of local officials, and delivery of often heavily subsidized goods and services has in many cases limited prospects for other companies, including regional companies. 
China's growing economic leverage also increasingly limits the U.S. ability to promote certain policy priorities in the region, including in, er in the area of democratic governance. The U.S. government, um, many of the esteemed senators here, right, and individual companies have worked hard to address what many perceive to be an increasingly competitive investment environment and to strengthen hemispheric ties. But there is more that needs to be done. Looking ahead, I naturally recommend more engagement with Latin America, starting with a focus on making the Summit of the Americas a resounding success. We all know that there are multiple competing commitments at play right now, but unless we play even more in the Latin American region, we have little chance of competing effectively. We must also make clear that our Latin American policy is focused on enhancing U.S.-Latin America cooperation based on shared interests and not just motivated by U.S. competition with China. I would also say that as China's activity in the region evolves, and it is evolving rapidly, U.S. policy and messaging must evolve accordingly. There, is some, there are some important areas of continuity in the China-Latin America dynamic. The region remains of critical importance to China's food and energy security and is a critical market for China's high-value-added goods. But we are now seeing an important focusing of Chinese investment and trade in a specific set of industries, which are mostly high-tech and innovation-related. China's engagement is also localizing. We are seeing more connections forged at very local levels in Latin America and by wide-ranging actors. This has facilitated Chinese engagement during some of the very earliest phases of project development, presenting a major challenge for us from a competitiveness perspective. Uh, China lack of financial uh, cooperation is also changing in important ways. And then finally, we must consider Latin American and Caribbean views of China when addressing China's engagement with the region. Regional governments are in many cases very aware of the challenges associated with China's model of finance and investment. But the U.S. must still tread carefully, I would argue, uh, when applying pressure on Latin American governments to limit economic options and partnerships with China. Because doing so, even when a viable alternative is provided, and even if it's been successful so far and is important, right, will increasingly be interpreted not as helping but as harming regional development prospects. What we can do is to work to expand our economic, educational, security-related, climate-specific, media-related, medical trade, you name it, cooperation, and technical activities, and also work to establish cooperation with Latin America on areas of shared concern about Chinese engagement, whether we're talking about corruption, which is a big one, or illegal fishing, which has been noted, or persistently imbalanced trade relations with China, among others. And doing this in partnership with like-minded uh, nations will only strengthen our overall effectiveness. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you, Ms. Myers. Dr. Ellis. Thank you. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, distinguished committee members. In the past two decades, PRC-based companies have invested $160 billion in Latin America. 21 of our neighbors there have pledged themselves to China's Belt and Road Initiative. The PRC is attempting to rewire the region to its own economic benefit, securing access to commodities and markets, capturing the value added for itself, and focusing on connectivity. In the port sector, PRC-based companies are involved in 40 major projects. China has multiple wind, solar, and hydroelectric facilities, albeit with problems. Indeed, Ecuador's Coca-Cola Sinclair Dam, as noted previously, had over 7,600 cracks, plus caused massive erosion, uh, rupturing one of the, that nation's major oil export pipelines. 
In Chile, piracy-based companies control an unprecedented 57% of electricity distribution. Growing piracy presence in digital architectures is an intelligence concern, given China's history of intellectual property theft <clears throat> and cyber espionage. In December 2021, for example, Microsoft exposed hacking by piracy-based Nickel, whose targets included companies in 16 Latin American countries. In telecommunications, Huawei has grown its Latin American presence for two decades and is now poised to dominate 5G networks. PRC-based companies have a growing role in the region's e-commerce, including Alibaba and the fintech company Nubank. The Chinese rideshare company Didi Chuxung has half of the market in Latin America, capturing data on passenger movement and finances. Chinese surveillance and control systems such as ECU-911 and BOL-110 capture similar sensitive data, as do the 10 PRC-built smart cities currently in the region. PRC-based Hikivision has taken over Syscom, Mexico's largest security systems company. The airport scanners from China's NewTek capture data on the devices that pass through them. In Chile, PRC-based Icino almost won the right to manage the company's entire civil registry. In Argentina, a PLA-operated deep space radar may capture communications from passing satellites. The PRC further promotes its interest through Latin American institutions. As noted previously, IADP President Mauricio Claver-Coron has called out the PRC for the use of its bank membership to win contracts for Chinese firms. In security engagement, the PRC is a significant provider of military goods to the region, including fighters, transport aircraft, and radars for Venezuela, helicopters and armored vehicles for Bolivia, and military trucks for Ecuador. Argentina may acquire FC-1 fighters, the most advanced PRC aircraft yet sold to the region. Officials within the PLA naturally plan for how they would use Latin America in a future war, leveraging the knowledge and relationships that they build today to do so. To this end, the PRC has made 20 military deployments to the region, and PLA leaders have visited 200 times since 2000. In people-to-people -people diplomacy, as noted previously, China's 44 Confucius Institutes attract those with the interest to learn Chinese, bringing the best of Latin Americans to study in the PRC on Hanban scholarships, after which they often secure China-facing positions in their own governments. The 2022-2024 China SELAC plan promises 5,000 such scholarships for Latin America's leading students. The PRC also engages the region's academics, journalists, politicians, and officials through luxurious paid trips to China. In pursuing its interests in the region, China also acts, importantly as noted by this committee, as an incubator of authoritarian populism, providing loans, investments, and commodity purchases that give liquidity to anti-democratic actors uh, such as Venezuela as they consolidate their power and hijack democracy. China also provides the mechanisms to help its authoritarian friends once in power stay there. In Venezuela, China's CEIEC helped the Maduro regime to spy on the opposition. In Cuba, Huawei Technologies helped to cut off protesters from the outside world during the July 2021 national uprisings. With respect to Taiwan, eight of the last 14 countries in the world that recognize the ROC are in the Western Hemisphere. Every flip facilitates the expansion of Chinese activities in that country through the signing of non-transparent MOUs. The PRC strategically benefits from Russia's provocative actions as well in the region, most recently its threat to deploy military forces, whether or not China and Russia coordinate on these matters. My recommendations, five. Number one, help our partners to engage the PRC with transparency on a level playing field and through strong institutions. Two, exclude Chinese vendors from sensitive digital domains, yet provide viable commercial alternatives to the PRC there. Three, support better government databases on the performance of the PRC and its companies. 
Four, rethink the rules that constrain the agility of agencies like Development Finance Corporation to provide alternatives. Five, fully leverage the June 2022 Summit of the Americas, of course, to advance a bold and resource-backed approach to partnership with the region. Thank you. I look forward to the committee's questions. Dr. Ellis, thank you. We'll begin a five-minute round of questions, and, and let me begin. I want to associate myself first with comments made by Senator Shaheen about vaccine diplomacy. Uh, the, the vaccine diplomacy from the United States to the Americas was extremely positive. I traveled with six senators, three Democrats, and three pro, uh, Republicans to the region last July, right as the U.S. vaccines were being delivered throughout the Americas. And uh, in four countries, Mexico, Ecuador, uh, Colombia, and, um, and Guatemala, we heard great appreciation for the U.S. vaccines. The fact that they were free was really appreciated. The fact that they were the high quality, the gold standard, they did not feel as confident about the vaccines, either the uh, Sinovac or the Sputnik vaccines. They were um, disturbed in their dealings with China and Russia over vaccines because vaccines would be promised and then not delivered. And if somebody said something about Taiwan, then suddenly a contract would be canceled. So that really seemed like a moment where we were very, very uh, aggressive and in a way that was really appreciated to offer these high-quality vaccines into the Americas. And so the notion that we're going to do a COVID bill and stop doing something that really was seen in a smart way in the region, I'm, I'm, I'm disturbed to hear that. I had not heard that, Senator Sheen, before you mentioned it. Um, what, what I want to ask is, what is the awareness of Latin American leaders about the dangers of entanglement with China. When, when we were in Ecuador, for example, so Ecuador had gone a very pro-China direction 20 years ago, but what they've seen was that Chinese investments often in infrastructure projects were poor quality, the, the very controversial dam project. China's oil drilling in the Amazon led to significant environmental challenges. The illegal fishing I mean, China, China illegal fishing is basically just vacuuming up fishing around the Galapagos, which is part of Ecuador in a way that's very disturbing and environmentally damaging. And so there was an election a year ago in Ecuador, and 70 percent of the national legislature was kicked out and a new president was enacted, a president who strongly wants to orient toward America and the near complete turnover of the uh, national level parliament also reflected sort of after 20 years, we're going the wrong direction. And there was a real revulsion at the entanglement with China. How broadly is that sentiment? Is the Ecuador story well understood? Are other nations experiencing the hard realities as they get deeper entangled with China? Um, or is China still kind of on the ascendancy in the Americas with more and more nations gravitating toward them? I can start. Uh, thank you very much, Senator, for the question. My sense is that it's, it's a terrific question, and my sense is that this really is an evolving thing, right, and really varies on a country-by-country -country basis. Ecuador is perhaps the best example here of a country that has begun to come to terms with the challenges associated with doing business with or interacting from a financial or investment perspective with China. Um, and one need only travel the road from the airport to Quito, where every day there are a lot of accidents because of challenges with the actual engineering of that road to know why many Ecuadorians feel this way. Um, in other cases, there is far less sensitivity to, to some of these challenges, or these challenges are well known, but the judgment is that 
so much needs to be done on the economic front, particularly at this juncture when countries are facing very, very dire economic challenges coming out of the COVID-19 crisis, that really engaging with all partners who are willing is, is the only viable option. And so that has tended to be the judgment, regardless of, you know, well-known and well-documented concerns about some of China's practices. And I think a really excellent example here is that of Colombia, um, wherein you have major flows of, obviously, Venezuelan migrants coming into the country. And some of that related to, you know, China's continued to support for the Maduro regime. And yet, very, very little interest in, in relating China at all to that problem. And a, in general, in the media and in discussions about uh, China-Colombia uh, relations, a very, very positive overall view. Senator Kane, you, you ask a very important question. I think it goes to the heart of the challenge that we have today. Um, number one, in general, our Latin American partners know that Chinese activities uh, tend to be predatory. They oftentimes distrust the Chinese. But so much of the Chinese soft power comes with the informal or formal expectation of benefit, not only at the country level, but also oftentimes at the corporate or individual level. That often leads our partners to say, well, we know we have to worry about the Chinese, but we think we can take the risk because we want the Chinese money. Um, that problem then leads to to, uh, oftentimes to undercut our messaging. Um, and uh, But as you point out in the Ecuadorian case, there are three areas in which we need to highlight the vulnerabilities. Um, you know, Certainly number one is with respect to the leaders who would take the oftentimes non-transparent and occasionally corrupt deals to discourage them through whole-of-government initiatives to do so, also to put more information out there by those who are hurt in those countries by the deals uh, for that, and also to push for transparency, uh, strong institutions in whole-of-government to really limit the space for, for doing so. And as you pointed out, sir, the Ecuadorian case, uh, beginning with Lenin Moreno and continuing with Guillermo Lasso, is very important in that aspect um, because things that we talked about, the Coca-Cola Sinclair Dam, really shows the cost of the Ecuadorian people, uh, including, uh, um, but it, it's also a series of others. I think uh, Tuachi Peloton also had problems. Uh, Mina San Francisco had problems. Uh, other dams were actually canceled, um, and the story continues across the region. And so we need to do a better job, actually, at making both public databases as well as having good talking points to really say, talk about the, the comparative uh, behavior of Chinese companies uh, as well as the um, comparative uh, behavior of, uh, of uh, Chinese personnel to make our messaging more effective to those partners in the region and tell those stories. Thank you both, Senator Rubio. Thank you, sir. Uh, Ms. Myers, I guess I, I take from your testimony what you were referring to, and I sort of talked about this yesterday in an interview that I did, is so you're a country, your, your economy needs to be developed, you have needs. You need roads, you need this, you need that. And, um, and here comes a Chinese business subsidized by the state offering you not just to construct the project, obviously, with their workers, but to finance it. And in some cases, frankly, some cash under the table for some of the decision makers as well. And the result is they understand China's a threat. They may not be big fans of China per se. They may be worried about what it means long term. But politically, it's tremendously beneficial to be at the ribbon cutting of this great new project that's financed. Um, there may be a debt trap, but that'll be somebody else's problem down the road, not when they're in office anymore. And uh, in some cases, frankly, uh, maybe you or some of your friends got some added benefits from it that um, it's, it's hard for us to compete against that. We, we can't bribe government officials in some of these countries. And we 
don't have a system in which we can go in and create infrastructure projects and finance them if those if the dollars or the money that it generates doesn't justify it. In essence, it has to be a justified project. In the case of China, it seems, and that's really my question, how much of this is they're willing to do projects that may not make sense from a market standpoint because it makes sense for them from a geopolitical standpoint? It's a fantastic question. Um, and indeed, I, both Evan and I and, and, and many others who are studying this particular issue are committed to trying to understand the primary motivations you know, behind a lot of these, these major infrastructure projects, whether they are you know, commercially viable or not, whether they have a very strong strategic rationale or not. Um, but you're right. I mean, in many of these cases, especially, if, for example, uh, the La Union port in, in, in El Salvador, right, is a perfect example where it's not a commercially viable project and would very much seem to be, you know, uh, of interest to China for strategic reasons. Um, so how does one compete with that, right, especially when it's of interest to whatever government in power and there may be kickbacks involved and, you know, China speed involved and something to announce to, to an electorate perhaps in advance of the next presidential election. It's a very, very challenging thing to do. What can the, the U.S. do in this particular instance? I mean, we can work probably not necessarily in El Salvador, but in a lot of countries to, you know, on capacity building on ensuring accountability, on ensuring transparency and procurement processes, on making sure that all there is, as we, as we say, a more even playing field, and a lot of this work is being done by state right now. I think it needs to be amplified considerably. Um, we also need to work with media to absolutely highlight those instances of projects gone wrong. Uh, Chinese projects gone wrong because of corruption. Um, this, these are not well understood. They sometimes just fall off the radar when they when they are, are in a period of protracted stasis or, or are canceled altogether. And few understand why, and a lot of that is related to corruption or, or a failure to have a fully transparent procurement process. So that needs to be well understood as well through you know, media articles and reports that are you know, published in Spanish uh, or Portuguese. Um, and, you know, and also, uh, you know, being there in many cases, uh, not just for, you know, unviable commercial from a commercial perspective projects, but viable ones. China is still the only company and the Chinese companies are the, still the only ones in the room, the only ones, you know, submitting bids or submitting bids that are competitive. So it's a pop, you know, it's, it's a matter of also being at the table. Um, so I, there are a number of things, I think, ongoing that we can do and, and, and perhaps enhance to, to, to better our position in this particular respect without copying China's problematic model. Uh, Michelle, let me ask you this in the brief time I have left. The, um, one of the things that's being talked about a lot these days is supply chains. And I think one of the things that Americans have learned through the pandemic is how dependent we are at things that are made halfway around the world. And if there's a, a pandemic over there, they have to close factories, if containers get backed up. Uh, frankly, in the future, if they decide to cut us off because we're in conflict with China, we don't get some of these essential products that range from things critical to our national security to the commercial products that people grew accustomed to and now are wondering why they can't find. And it strikes me that to the extent, obviously, I believe that we want to bring some of that manufacturing capacity to the United States, that that's something that we should prioritize. There are perhaps some functions that will never be cost-effective to do here because of where they are. But it, it strikes me that... Um, given the fact that so many of that, much of that is imported into North America, to the extent that those supply chains can't be in the United States, why can't they be in Honduras and Guatemala and other countries, Haiti and other part Dominican Republic that would certainly benefit from this 
and and I think it deals with a number of things, including economic opportunity, stems migration flow, where they need to migrate and so forth. What are the impediments standing in the way of supply chain capabilities moving, some of them at least, to this hemisphere, where theoretically you have young populations that could fill those jobs much the way that Southeast Asia started to do 25, 30 years ago? Senator Rubio, you make a very important point, and certainly while uh, such decisions are generally in the hands of the private sector in terms of where to put their investment and their other options, uh, such as managing inventory um, to offset some of these great risks that we've seen in supply chains from the Pacific, um, certainly uh, if you take a look at Mexico with uh, – with a relatively uh, good infrastructure, at least transportation infrastructure, qualified populations, uh, similar opportunities in, in Central America and, and elsewhere. Um, it is uh, absolutely every reason uh, through our trade policy and, and through encouraging of investment that we should be able to at least get a portion of that coming to the right direction um, and uh, in the process help help the region. Uh, part of the difficulties have already come up today. Um, on the one hand, you have uh, really our, our two key um, bodies, Development Finance Corporation, which should be, I would argue, far more agile. And, and I, I would say that some of the restrictions that we have on, on DFC uh, have made it difficult, uh, despite the very good progress that it's already made in increasing its portfolio. On the other hand, as, as the committee, in my personal judgment, has already uh, um, brought up uh, the issue of what can we do uh, to better increase the capital or, or support the IADB, um, and frankly, uh, what can we do in, in other areas also to better work with our partners, um, and it goes beyond just the, the economics, but it also goes to working with our partners on security collaboration and other issues, um, and also dialoguing more effectively with some of our partners who are shooting themselves in the, the foot. Uh, for example, Mexico should be one of our, our um, most important partners for increasing uh, that nearshoring, and yet at the same time, we have, unfortunately, an administration there, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, who is doing everything possible to make his nation's electricity, including uh, green electricity, more expensive and, and less viable, pushing up costs to produce in Mexico as an alternative. So I, I would argue that there are a range of things that we need to do to, to bring about that nearshoring to the benefit of our hemisphere and for Americans. Thank you for the question, Senator. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Senator Kane. I'd like to thank uh, Senator Rubio for raising that uh, important strategic issue on supply chain nearshoring. Um, I've traveled to Guatemala. There's a tremendous amount of interest there. They've hired McKinsey there to help them figure out a strategy for this. Our trade agreements, whether they be the USMCA that has a lot of potential or tr old trade agreements that could be updated, present some opportunity. But also our development finance entities could do a lot more. And I'd like to turn my attention to something that Senator Menendez mentioned uh, in the previous panel because I'd like to follow up on it. Uh, but I'd like to, 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 to highlight the points that you made, Dr. Ellis, because you went through a litany of areas where China is basically dominating in a region that's in this hemisphere, whether it's raw material access, dominating 5G, the rideshare market, I didn't realize they'd taken over half of that in Latin America, the energy markets, the fact that Hickey Vision is taking over you know, data collection there. This is our backyard. This is our hemisphere that we're talking about. And China is literally eating our lunch. The thing that concerned me greatly in the last panel, I know that the two of you weren't here, but we were being addressed by the Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Western, for Western Hemisphere Affairs for Public Diplomacy, Policy, Planning, and Coordination. Yet she couldn't tell me or tell this panel the metrics that should be used. She didn't even know where the fentanyl was coming from that's coming across the number one killer of youth in our nation. The State Department is not measuring this. How do you hold somebody accountable? How do you hold a nation accountable? How do you hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable for killing our youth when you don't know how much is coming across this border or why? She was unable to articulate a plan or comment on the key levers that should be used in this policy planning. I'm talking about the IADB. 
the DFC. We've got so many levers that should be brought together in the form of policy planning and coordination to have a comprehensive plan to address the very aggressive posture that China is taking in our own hemisphere, yet we don't have that plan. I think we clearly need to elevate this as a committee up the chain to get a plan from the State Department. They have the titles, they have the role on paper, but all we heard today was a solution of perhaps raising media awareness of China's behavior when it comes to illegal fishing. That's unacceptable. And I appreciate the fact that you're highlighting the problem. It's become very clear to all of us. And I think we need to get more accountability from our own government entities from a coordination standpoint so we can better use these tools. And where the tools are inadequate, that will inform us on how to improve those tools. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Haggerty. Senator Haggerty, you would have, uh, your, your comments really would have resonated with the Armed Services Committee we're hearing that we had last week with the director of Southcom, who could just continually was very candid about being the most under-resourced and the lowest priority AOR. Um, and vi- even in this area of, uh, of drug trade, we know so much more about where drugs are coming than we have the capacity to stop because they're under-resourced when it comes to Coast Guard assets and others. So I think this issue of in, in this area that is so critical um, in the dollars, in where our diplomats go, in the attention that we pay in terms of hearings. We've had, we've had good attendance at this subcommittee hearing. Um, we, we, we all have to up our game. I completely agree with you on that. I want to thank the witnesses for your testimony and, and for the fact that you've really focused on this issue for a very long time. We need you. Um, if there are more questions for either of the panel of witnesses, the record for the hearing will remain open until the close of business tomorrow, February 1, 22. I'd ask members to in, uh, direct their questions by that time, and I'd ask the panelists to ensure that questions are uh, answered promptly. Thanks again for participating in this hearing. To my colleagues, staff, and to our witnesses, the hearing's adjourned. <laughs>